0: Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. Today, we're discussing the fraud, waste, and abuse risks of telehealth with Emad Rizik of Cotivity. Later, I'll be talking with Sandra Carey from Huron about the opportunities of revenue cycle learning. But first, Beyond the News is coming up right now.
1: Hello, this is Rich Daly, a senior writer and editor for HFMA.
2: And I'm Chuck Alster. I'm a director of professional practice, also here at HFMA.
1: Thanks for joining us on the Beyond the News segment of the podcast, where we take a quick look at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. Among recent news developments was the fast approaching insolvency of the Medicare Hospital Insurance Trust Fund that could spur a scramble for solutions, including possibly leveraging more value based payment models or changes to those models. The first thing I just wanted to check is what should uh, healthcare care finance leaders know about the lay of the land on the solvency of the Medicare hospital insurance trust fund? And what are some obvious or historic ways its finances have been shored up? And, and what's the outlook for those?
2: Many folks know that this uh, trust fund has been on the brink several times over the last few decades, but right now it's projected to be insolvent around 2024. So we're looking at a pretty big number the CBO is estimating around 17% uh, cut to keep the program operational. So some pretty significant things need to change. And, and that's obviously going to come on the back of uh, largely the provider community and probably pharmaceutical companies as well. So those are the two, I would say, obvious answers to the cuts that need to happen.
1: What are some other ways that a Biden administration and Congress may look to providers to provide savings for it?
2: I think that they're going to push on the value-based payment models in, in the ACO, probably the larger scale ACO models, a little bit more than this last administration. I think that'll be coupled with price transparency efforts. Obviously, we've got a big one coming up here in January, but I don't see any of that going away. I think it's probably just going to be more aggressive.
1: And uh, as far as the pandemic, that, that could, I guess, have a big complicating effect on any sort of major changes to bolster the trust fund, huh?
2: Well, I, I understand where they're likely headed. I think the timing is the question um, with the pandemic continuing to rage on and additional funds likely needed by the provider community jumping into significant modifications within the value-based payment models are likely going to be shelved until my guess is uh, 2022 for anything that's significant. And as we've seen this year, you know, kind of pausing and likely not a whole lot of savings coming out this year, the impact will probably not occur for, uh, you know, a couple of years.
1: Thanks a lot. And uh, appreciate the insights, Chuck. Thanks, Rich. Of course, you can also keep up with the latest legal policy and Medicare spending cut news related to hospitals, health systems, and providers at our news page at hfma.org forward slash news.
0: Looking for a quick and easy way to fill open positions on your team? Post your open positions through HFMA's Job Bank. The niche recruiting site for healthcare finance professionals like you. List your open positions today at hfma.org/jobbank. The door that was opened for rapid telehealth expansion during the COVID-19 pandemic also presented new opportunities for fraud, waste, and abuse. Add to that the challenges providers were facing with COVID coding rules, and there are quite a few issues to untangle. Recently, I talked with Imad Rizik, chairman and CEO of Cotivity Healthcare, about what's at risk and what to do.
3: When you are doing a telehealth call as a provider, you probably spend a great deal of time trying to get the, sort of the, the history and the information that's related to the chief complaint of the patient. A lot of times that is not connected to a medical record or electronic medical record. So you're basically starting the entire process over, which makes your assessment not as optimal as it would be if you had retrospective data. That's the first piece that I just wanted to mention in terms of interoperability. The second one, which is around fraud, waste, and abuse, is we've seen, at least in our organizations and other organizations, The overuse and potentially the misdiagnoses of telehealth medicine, where a patient might actually get misdiagnosed and the tests are ordered are also not necessary around the frequency of calls that are required with that, and also the level of care, which is very important. There are various levels in terms of care for complex care. So a patient who has very controlled diabetes or or very minor hypertension that's controlled, you generally don't need a level 3 or a level 4 or a level 5, a comprehensive one. And one would argue that those are very complex to be able to be done online. So when you start to see many of these telehealth billings coming by with very comprehensive, you know, level threes, level 4 and others, you start to actually dive a little deep to look at the data there. And many of the times these patients are not necessarily very ill or not very complex for the level of billing that took place.
0: As health plans anticipate an uptick in bad claims, and it sounds like some of those have already been coming through, what should they be doing? How should they be preparing? And what kind of conversations might they be having with their provider partners?
3: I think there are probably... Three things I mean we, we uh, many of the health plans and with some of the things that we've developed at Cotivity you know we've been able to leverage AI and we you know we've able to to leverage retrospective look around providers and and diagnoses we also have kind of information where we look at and assess what we would consider this level of care you know whether it's an evaluation and management, uh, that's that level of care of a uh, level one, two, three, four, five. So we you could start to have that intelligence around what constitutes that level of care. So there was three things that we recommended to our clients. Number one was start looking at this bypass. Remember this bypass that I mentioned is do you really need this, this bypass at this point in time like we did in February, March, and April? Or can we create a, a, a more intelligent bypass? In other words, if it is a COVID nineteen patient, we need you know, a positive COVID nineteen, where in the past it was a suspected COVID nineteen. I don't know if that makes sense. So maybe that you add another parameter where you say you just, you know, we'll be able to do this when, when you have a positive COVID nineteen versus just a an assumption of it based on the syndromic presentation. The second is this leveraging AI and intelligence around whether or not the the level of care is appropriate, whether this requires an emergency room visit. And we have a lot of important data that we look at in terms of providers and everything. So did you really need to do a full CT scan and everything? Obviously this is all the physician's decision at that point of time, but you know, you just, you have to make sure was the test done because Remember, keep in mind that fraud, waste, and abuse for your listeners is not just a financial issue. It is a quality issue. Think of the old adage that you want the right care to be given to the right patients in the right care setting. Right? We always say that. We want the the appropriate care to the right patient at the appropriate setting. Think of telehealth as a setting. You know, we don't want patients to do a normal physician visit in the emergency room. That's why we started urgent care centers, something that is not quite requiring of that. So one of the things that we do is to make sure that it's also the care is taking place in the appropriate setting. So one of those appropriate settings is actually telehealth. Is that an appropriate setting? Is this the right type of patient that should be seeing this, and is this the appropriate level of care that needs to take place? So it should definitely take place across the entire healthcare system, with telehealth being part of that.
2: How do you benchmark your revenue cycle performance? Many organizations measure success compared to past performance. Others leverage software to benchmark against other facilities that share the same technology. But that only paints part of the picture. What about comparing your performance to your peers? Peers that you define in custom peer groups. MapApp is the online benchmarking tool from HFMA that helps organizations compare their performance against data from more than 600 facilities. Interested in taking the next steps to identify your revenue cycle opportunities? Visit hfma.org forward
0: slash I've talked with many, many organizations about their revenue cycle strategy and performance. And no matter where they are or what their focus is, the one common thread is that everyone wants to improve. Our sponsor today has some thoughts about one strategy, revenue cycle learning. According to Sandra Carey, managing director at Huron Consulting Group, learning can enable an organization to build a culture of improvement. Briefly, what is revenue cycle learning strategy and why is it so critical for leaders to be thinking about?
4: The simple way I'll describe revenue cycle learning, it's continually adapting your workforce to handle the future. And we are intentional about using the word learning to really the forward thinking in the way that we design this thought process and help our clients through their challenges versus training obviously being a critical component of learning, but most of the time is very focused on a one-time event versus really thinking about the needs of the future and working backwards from that. Why it's a critical topic for leaders? Well, there's a lot of reasons. (laughs) Not one, the least, the environment we're, we're living in and all the changes that we're endearing every day uh, within the revenue cycle space. But I think the other real critical need is the, the need for results. And, you know, one of the case studies I like to go back to a client we were working with is, you know, they were strapped for financial results. They certainly needed every penny that came in the door. And by focusing on their learning strategy, they were able to find very quick improvement. By thinking about what the needs of the staff are, understanding where their development opportunities are today and where they need to be in the future, they were able to, within a three-month period, increase their improvement results that ultimately tied to denial write-off by 10% by taking a much more thoughtful and strategic approach to their learning.
0: For organizations that haven't considered their learning strategies yet, Carrie had some words of wisdom for both leaders and staffers.
4: So number one, you know, our our learnings would point to you start with your leadership team because number one, they need to walk the talk. And if you are trying to focus on learning and really be forward looking, you need to ensure that your leaders are equipped to do the same thing. They have a lot on their plate. Workloads are heavy. And so making it an intentional focus for them to think about their own development and have, like I said, some of those daily kind of activities that bring those ideas out for them as individuals and for the group. An example of that is simple as just in your one on one meetings with your higher level leader highlighting here's an area I'm curious about I'm looking into or I, I'm wanting to read this article and I want to talk about that in the next meeting or here's a challenge and I'd like to bring this up in our next you know group meeting to have some case study you know dialogue around. those are all simple ways to just start the conversation with that leadership team and start to create a culture that then enables it for further down into the staff. The second thing I would say, is related to the staff, where do you start? And it really comes down to knowing what your staff needs are. We have had the opportunity to participate in many staff assessments and understand what those key skills are that are needed and how well the staff are performing against those key skills. Our findings are that 32% of staff score below the industry benchmark of 70% or greater in knowing what the key needs are for their role. And that highlights a pretty big gap. And so just knowing what the gap is and knowing at an individual level, you know, how they have responded to those questions and what their needs are will help you then down the journey of what to then provide learning on. And then I I would say the third thing is, is being really thoughtful about the type of a delivery method you provide to the staff to help them learn and you know ultimately become proficient. And there's many different ways that us as adults like to learn, and that's the key takeaway. There isn't one approach that's going to be the end-all, be-all, but being kind of thoughtful in what you can do as peer-to-peer and help each other, uplift each other, what you can do in providing simple, short bursts of content that they can self navigate and learn on their own, Uh, what you can do in more of a networking type of environment, case study, and and be able to talk through that. Those are all great examples of ways that you can be dynamic with the way you deliver the content to both your staff and your leaders.
0: You've mentioned the word culture a couple times while we've been talking, and it definitely sounds like this is very much a culture thing that, um, as you said, has to start with the leadership and really needs to to have buy-in from everyone along the way, so that you can ensure that your strategy is is working the way you want it to.
4: That's exactly right. I mean, culture is the key point here. Your learning program needs to be embedded within the organizational culture. What's important to the whole organization, and then, of course, what's important to the revenue cycle. You know, as as everybody kind of adapts into the mindset of intellectual curiosity and and recognizing that there's never a stopping point for where learning ends, uh, I think are key concepts that need to be embedded into the overall cultural point of view.
0: For leaders who are starting to build their learning approach, what factors are important to get that culture right and also just to get the mechanics of it right and what they want to do and how?
4: I think there's a few things that are important to get it right. One is to lay out what is the best case scenario look like. What are you ultimately striving for as the highest level of performance that you're going to reward? We like to, to think about that as you know, what are the core competencies that this, this culture or behaviors that this culture is going to recognize and reward over time. And when, when you have that down and you as a leadership team agree on that, that really is unifying and it allows for some really healthy discussion, certainly throughout that just discovery and design work. It doesn't happen one day, it's this and the next day it's that. But by having that laid out and understood, then you start to look for those types of key behaviors or key attributes that individuals are contributing and call those out as wins.
0: This segment was sponsored by Huron. Huron is a global consulting company that partners with healthcare organizations to drive strategic growth, ignite innovation, and navigate change. With over 30 years of revenue cycle experience, Huron provides actionable solutions to help clients accelerate operational, technical, and cultural transformation that elevates patient experience and financial outcomes. More information is available at huronconsultinggroup.com. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our director of content strategy. Our president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Special thanks to our sponsor this week Huron Consulting Group. And if you like what you're hearing on our podcast, recommend it to a friend or leave us a review. And if you want to chat with our team, reach out. Our email address is podcast at hfma.org.
4: Why can't I say this?